Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to episode 85 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico, and this week I'm reviewing Tom Cruise's munch-hyped movie, Mission Impossible Fallout, with film and culture critic and a good friend of mine, Mike Sargent. Should Tom Cruise stop doing his own stunts at 56? What makes an action film epic? And could Fallout be the best of the Mission Impossible franchise? Mike and I get into it. And I have the pleasure of speaking with New York actress and producer Luna Lauren Velez, who you've seen many times on TV in her roles on Dexter, Oz, Ugly Betty, and How to Get Away with Murder on ABC, just to name a few. Plus, her film roles in City Hall with Al Pacino, the recent horror film The First Purge, which has gotten great reviews, and the upcoming remake of Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson. I catch up with her to discuss her new film, American Adrift, about the opioid addiction in a Latino family and how social media has become a necessary evil for working actors, plus the new American optics of being Puerto Rican in this country. There was no representation of that particular thing of being Afro-Caribbean. And in my family, we were different colors, you know? Um, so I guess I see I'm not surprised because I, when you grow up with that awareness, yeah. you know it exists and it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's in the fabric of our country, you know. Um, but I did think that it meant something that Puerto Rico was part of the United States. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. We kick it off with Mike Sargent and our review of Mission Impossible Fallout. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. You need to walk away. Please don't make me go through you. How many times has Hunt's government betrayed him, disavowed him, cast him aside? How long before a man like that has had enough? Mike, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, I, I went to go see it. I know you had already seen it, uh, I think a week before I did, and I got to see it this week in the IMAX theater at 68th and Broadway. You and I have seen many movies there before, and uh, McQuarrie, the director, showed up to kind of do a little introduction, and it really gave a lot of context to these films. You know what? I I think every movie that (laughs) press sees should be introduced by the director or a producer. I remember Jerry Bruckheimer did this for a movie that um, we the press got an advanced screening to as well. And I think they're, they're important, and I'll tell you why. It's because it adds this tremendous amount of context and layer and exposition before you see the movie, because you're looking out for things. Like there was a moment he says, 
Well, you know, you all know about the injury that Tom Cruise suffered during doing one of the stunts where he was uh, jumping from one building to the other and he broke his ankle. So then he kind of talked about that moment, how it was kept in the in, in the scene. It made the final cut. And dude, when we were in the theater, when that moment happened, the audience gasped. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was there. Same thing happened with me, too. Same thing happened. Same thing happened. So, wait, because you- because everybody knew right. that he had had that uh, uh, that injury. And again, we're press people, so we all know. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened in that moment, everybody, you could see everybody kind of wincing <laughs> because they knew he hurt himself for right. real. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So before we get into the interview, just to kind of give people a little bit of, uh, you know, also context about Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible right now, it's going through a couple of, it's in the news for other reasons outside of it being a great movie. Number one, everyone's talking about the eight-week hiatus that Tom Cruise had and how it ballooned the budget of the film to $250 million, which is about $80 million more than Rogue Nation had before. And Paramount, as you know, the studio has been going through a lot of controversial moments, uh, it's it's not doing well. Viacom as a whole is not doing well. And so there's been talks that if Paramount doesn't put out hits uh, the way Warner Brothers and maybe Sony has been doing, that it could see itself fold. And so there's been a lot of talk about that. And Tom Cruise, I know, has a lot of weight, but how much weight does he have to put in to, to allow a, a studio that that that's that's in decline to a certain extent, to have to put in an extra $80 million. Because now you're putting the pressure on Tom, the movie, and everybody else to really kick it in. Now, there's been reports that, oh, it hasn't ballooned to eighty uh, to $250 million. It's more $180 million because the money that everybody thinks uh, that was added uh, because of the Tom Cruise injury is not because, oh, look at this amount of time, it's just more money being elevated. The insurance is paying for the for, for, for the injury of Tom Cruise. The money is it's for the eight weeks of people sitting around waiting. Not having not going out and getting other jobs. Correct. The big question is should Tom Cruise continue to be doing his own stunts today? Can a studio from now on allow a movie star to dictate how the production moves does it go on hiatus does it not go on hiatus do we start going tom you're 56 years old buddy no need for you to do your own stunts anymore let's get a stunt guy to do it because mike let's be honest one of the fascinations of seeing these movies is seeing tom cruise do his own stunts but absolutely will if there was a stunt man that was going to not allow tom cruise to actually get hurt at the age of 56 and save his career for more of a long-term career, wouldn't you take the stunt guy? Part of the appeal of seeing Tom Cruise, again, you know, we, li- we live, you know, the thing, the thing that's happened with film is that we've, we've, you know, there's almost no middle ground. You know, you're either weird indie independent that you might be able to see on Netflix or, or you know, streaming somewhere, and then there's the spectacle. There's the event film. And Mission Impossible films are event and spectacle filmmaking. Part of the spectacle, like you said, is watching Tom Cruise when you see it's him. That's him hanging on to that helicopter. That's him hanging on to that plane. That's him scaling Sky that cliff. Skydiving off right. of a plane. 
Right. That's him. And I think that that's part of the appeal of this. Now, l- just to use an example, that was the appeal and, and added to the longevity of Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan, it was known, like, how many bones did he break doing this film? They'd have outtakes that were like, ooh, you know, you yes, wince I've when you see those. those. Right. And that was part of the appeal of Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan did this for a good 40 years. And, you know, he's in his 60s now. Uh, you know, he, he still can choreograph great stuff and he's probably not doing stunts like he used to. But, uh, here's what I think. I think that if Mission Impossible bombed, then we'd hear the cry, you know, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, ballooning budget caused this film to be in the red and blah, blah, blah. That's when it would happen. I, I don't think that that will happen yet. I think as he approaches 60 and he's maybe got one more of these in him where he does some craziness, but I I can't see it going past 60 and I can't see it going past one more film to where like, okay, if he's still doing it, they're not going to allow him because Paramount's not in a good enough situation that they could just bank everything on, on, on Tom. Well, especially when technology has allowed you to, have a stuntman that doesn't even look like Tom Cruise, but then digitize Tom Cruise's face on the stunt guy. They do those things nowadays, and they do it excellently. If you go to Google right now mm-hmm. and you put in Tom Cruise stunts, do you want to know how <laughs> many? How You get over 40 million results in 56 seconds. So what does that tell you? You know, And, and, and every time one of these movies comes out, you know, and if you look at like what comes up, it'll be, you know, 12 dangerous movie stunts Tom Cruise actually performed. You know, Tom Cruise's most insane Mission Impossible stunts, 10 death-defying stunts actually done by Tom, 15 movie stunts that almost killed Tom Cruise. That's news. And one of the secrets of having a film, especially an event film or any film, really, this is something I even tell when I, when I, I, I talk to people who are, who are doing what they want to do, a short or a this or that. You have to have the, the film could be whatever it is, but the making of the film itself has to be newsworthy to get what they used to call ink. So let's call it right. digital ink. Right. So the, <laughs> the making, the making of the film, the fact that he's 56 now, it used to be, he's doing these insane stunts. Now he's doing these insane stunts and he's 56. So, so that's part of what people write about all these people. And, and when I say it's not just you know, IndieWire and, and Hollywood Reporter, but, you know, in other countries, in, in the Hindu, Hindu stand times, they talk about it. In, in Telegraph, uh, in the UK, they're yeah, talking it's a, it's about it. It's a global it. story. It's a glo- it's a global story. And so I think that economically, yes, you know, Indian Express, I'm, I'm just looking here online where we're talking. It, there's, all the it's a global story that comes with the package of this kind of Tom Cruise movie. So now let's go into the movie itself. Where do you rank Fallout compared to the other Mission Impossible films? Is this the best one? First of all, the first Mission Impossible movie I thought was a mess. Okay. What? I thought, I I thought, thought that, that was the classic of all oh, classics. It was a piece the of op- crap. The opening scene in Prague? Oh. Oh, oh, come on. My. Whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> so uh, that's just my, my take on it. And again, I haven't gone back and seen it since back in 96. But at the time, I, I thought it was a mess. Uh, you know, De Palma is not an action uh, movie guy and everything was derivative. So, but by the second movie, when they brought in John Woo, it was a lot closer. Okay. But by the third movie, when they brought in J.J. Abrams, 
who is who better than anybody knows how to translate a TV series to the big screen, as we well know. Okay, I thought he did a great job. I thought he finally got it. He what he got about what made Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible is not James Bond. Mission Impossible is a different thing. What, what Mission Impossible has is a a good spy story. B an American hero, an American team. Okay, and and in this case, all right, we got a you know a, an Irish guy in there, but uh, an American team that's doing cool spy shit. There's always a a double cross and a turnaround and all the stuff that you really go to a spy thriller for. Now that being said. They've been getting it right. They've just been getting better and better. I'd say this is right up there with the best of them. If it's not the best, it's easily as good as any of the other good ones. As good as the Brad Bird one. And I definitely liked it better than the last one that Chris McQuarrie did. I can't say anything else outside of that. This was one of the most enjoyable experiences in a theater I've had all year. Absolutely. I agree. And you know what else I think is interesting, too? Because I, I you know, when you look back at the series, you know, we were just talking about, like, I, I definitely didn't like the first one. I thought the second one was closer. Third one was a bit of a misfire. But I definitely think, like you said, Ghost Protocol, when they brought Brad Bird on, who, who uh, you know, who did The Incredibles, and that was his first live-action film, uh, I thought he did a great job. And it became... Ethan Hunt became more like Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise is someone who's constantly trying to top himself. He's trying to top himself with stunts, top himself with movies. He's, he's, he's overly enthusiastic. That's Tom Cruise. And I think now that they've made, uh, you know, Ethan Hunt more that, I mean, that's really what he's got going for him. What I really liked about this film is the subplot of the fact that, you know, they feel he's, you know, he's had his time in the sun and he's too reckless. So they bring in a younger, taller, better looking British guy to in kind Henry of put Cavill. him in, oh, in Henry Cavill to bring him <laughs> in his place. And the other inside joke there. What's that? No, no, this is my computer. Oh. oh, OK. And the other inside joke there for, I think, casting Henry Cavill is because Henry Cavill looks a lot more like what Jack Reacher is supposed to look like in the novels. I love and Jack Reacher, by the way. Yeah, I like it too. It's also Chris McQuarrie. But the thing is, in the Jack Reacher novels, he's supposed to look more like Henry Cavill does. Oh. Tall. And so that a lot of fans of the books were unhappy with the fact that Tom, who's short and dark hair and all that, is playing this character who is supposed to be a lot more like a Henry Cavill. So having Henry Cavill come in, to be sort of of up of ups upstand in sort of that is he bad or is he good way I thought was a brilliant piece of casting. What did you like about this particular film? Why are these action movies so good? Well, I think it's three things. I think one, I think Tom Cruise, like I said, is always trying to top himself. If you look at what he did with the Mission Impossible films, he from the time he he did. Even the first one, and you know, even though I didn't like it, he got like the top Hollywood writer, a top Hollywood director, to and and you know, and a great cast. Okay, he's had all all the actors in his films are great actors, great character actors who've either done other. He had Philip Seymour Hoffman in one, you know, and then he gets great directors: John Woo's an auteur, Brian De Palma's an auteur, Brad Bird's an excellent Brad Bird's an auteur. Yeah, all these guys are auteurs. These are like 
filmmakers, writer directors who can who understand storytelling. And what uh, Macquarie knows how to do because he's a great writer, he knows how to tell a good story. And the action has to be in the service of the story. Because here's the thing, you know, there's a great uh, screenplay guru named John Truby. And he had a saying he used to tell because he would break down genres and how to write them. And he talked about in writing an action film, he says, you have to remember that action can be the death of plot. Because when you have a fight between two characters, the story doesn't move until one of them wins. So you have to have, just like a musical, the story can't stop for the song to come on. The story has to progress with the action. And I think that is the difference with the Tom Cruise and the action sequences. They are moving, they're advancing the plot. Like if he gets out of this, he's going to get to do such and such a thing. It's, it's part of the plot. It's an obstacle he's got to get past as opposed to the film stopping for some big stunt. Right. That's that's what I think. And then I think then the third thing is that, you know, let's face it, how many you look about the last 20 years. Name me three really good spy films of the last 20 years. Uh Argo, uh which is a somewhat of a spy film. I, I, okay. Right. Okay. So that one best okay. picture. I mean, you, you, okay. we can go to that. They're That's not frequent. One. They're not frequent. That's my point. That's my point. You have to think for a minute. You're like, hmm, take a tell so to spy. Argo, uh, you know, you got to think because, you know, you talk about iconic things. You know, boys, what do boys want to be when they grow up? Oh, they want to be a, a, a cop, baseball player, right. a cop, right? Or who, what boy at some point didn't want to be a spy? A super spy, right? Right. And I think, I think, and 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 let's face it, girls would like to be a super spy oh, too. Oh yeah, look at the Americans. I mean, I think, I think exactly. girls look at Carrie Russell and the you know one of the of big hit TV shows of the last five years and the Americans on FX, and exactly. they go, yeah, I want to be Carrie Russell. I want to be a spy. Right. And I think that that I think I think being a spy, the notion of secret identity, I think all these things play into what we as human beings love most about you know what a story can do, you know, even, even, you know, superhero movies, they all have secret identities. So there's that element of like, you know, ah, you don't really know who I am. You don't know really what I can do. Right. Like Red Sparrow, that was also a spy movie that just recently came out with Jennifer Lawrence, even though that I disagreed. I mean, basically that, that spy movie was basically spies becoming whores uh, in order to achieve and accomplish their goals, which, you know, uh, that's a whole other story, but well, yeah, but you could look at Bond the same way. Bond was pretty much a whore. He was just a male whore. Yeah, but but really, do you think that? I mean, the thing is, Red Sparrow tells the story of how they built them to be whores. Yes, the, the art of seduction and the art of persuasion was their main and, arsenal. Sex was their main arsenal. And tell me how many times Bond would but, not seduce the main bad guy's girl, and she turned. Because of how seductive true, he was. True, true, true. But I think he did it because he was just a horny guy. Ah, <laughs> I don't well, think see, he now was- now you're, apply, you're applying different uh, uh, sensibilities now. But wait a minute. Don't you really think that the James Bond movies- I mean, look, come on. What was the- James I don't Bond think I, was a man whore. He was a man whore. whore, whore no whore. way. No way, Mike. <laughs> There's no way James Bond was a male whore. He wasn't bred to James become a male Bond, whore listen. to seduce the women in these movies. His whole mission- I want- 
Listen, I want your listeners to write in, was Bond a male whore or not? Guys, email us, Please. tweet us. Do you think male James Bond was a male whore? I disagree. Right. Mike thinks he was bred for that specific purpose, like well, Jennifer Lawrence and Brit, Brit Sparrow. Uh, but she wasn't bred for that purpose, but that was part of how she could do her job. Uh, and then my final question, Mike, to you is yes. Tom Cruise himself. Where do you see him at this point? Is he in, I mean, after seeing Fallout, you can say to yourself, yeah, he's 56 and he has another five years in him to make, you know, these great action movies. But these action movies take a long time. He's getting hurt more frequently. Um, should he be doing other types of films? So she, should he once again reconsider maybe doing drama, something that doesn't take so much time and so much out of him because it's a taxing genre. Okay. Uh, um, where maybe leave it to The Rock. Maybe he's your new Tom Cruise. And and what is the magic of Tom Cruise today in an era where the movie star is almost obsolete. Okay, A, I don't know that the movie star is obsolete. I don't think so, because I think that the cult of celebrity is bigger than ever. That's that's just my thought on that. But two, um, no, I think Tom can be do this for another 10 years because A, look at look at the number one film in America right now is got a 60-something-year-old guy kicking Equalizer. ass. Okay? Yeah, but he was... Equalizer. But he was <laughs> kicking okay, ass. Okay, that's one. Right, He's but kicking he, ass. But he had right. stunt doubles. Yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. The idea of him still doing an action film in his 60s is, val- is, is viable. And then can anybody say uh, um, Liam Neeson? Okay? Mm. Okay, Liam Neeson is, you know, the penultimate, you know, old guy action star and you know i mean if you tom cruise is aged pretty well he takes care of himself you look at him he's doing now top gun 2 they couldn't put kelly mcgillis in it because kelly mcgillis doesn't even look like the same woman she was you <laughs> right. know now albeit she she got out of business and you know and and being a movie star you're being paid to look good so she's you know it's she's free to just be a regular person but she clearly didn't take as good care of herself, irregardless of whether she's on camera or not, as somebody like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is aging pretty well. I got to say, he looks good 56. You know, he's older than some folks that look pretty freaking old. So what's his magic? What makes him the movie star? Uh, my take on it, my take on it is that what makes him a movie star, and keep in mind, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan, but I, I respect him. What I think, the, the thing about him is that his work ethic. Tom Cruise is a guy who clearly loves what he does, okay? He clearly has, I think, a certain amount of humility about him. You know, mm-hmm. I think he has a certain amount, uh, or at least he can project a certain amount of humility. He throws himself literally into his roles. Yep. He tries to he tries to work with the best. I mean, he took two years out of his life to work with Kubrick. And yeah. why? Because it's Kubrick. You know what I mean? He, he cleared his skate. He had films he had to pull out of because that shoot took so long. And now he can look back, though. He was smart enough then, 20 years ago, to say, you know what? One day I'll be happy that I was able to be in a film by this master. And if you just look at Mission Impossible, which was his first franchise, you know, as a production company where he was controlling it and he bought the franchise to create a franchise for himself, uh, uh, 22 years later, okay, he's had the top people in Hollywood working on it from uh, giving a person like Brad Bird uh, his first live action film to John Woo, J.J. Uh, Abrams, who had not done a lot of feature films at that point in time. You know, um, you know, he he not only does he work with icons, 
but he but he believes and looks for talent. You know, now looking back at it, I just finished seeing Top Gun recently because I had not seen it in 20 years. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm yeah. And, and so yeah. I had a chance to rewatch it. And I go, Tom what was Cruise, that like? I'm, I'm curious. It's definitely an 80s movie. I mean, it, it, it's 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 written all over it. I mean, from the pace, from the aesthetic, uh, from the directorial style of the era, uh, from the characters, from the sexuality, you know, from the jokes. It's a very macho movie. It's a movie made for men. It's not really made for women. It, it slightly objectifies women, yet it does show the the first signs of 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 empowering women. Uh, on screen, um, but but definitely a macho boys movie uh, that doesn't take into. And I'm really curious about how the sequel is going to sort of negate a lot of those machoistic attitudes in 2018. The ending of the film sets up, and that's what I totally forgot. It really sets up a sequel because in the in the end of the movie, and you know, 20 years if it's not a spoiler at this point, they ask Tom Cruise, Tom. Uh, in the film, uh, uh, Maverick, they go, Maverick, so what are you going to do now? And he says, I think I'm going to become a Top Gun instructor. So it's- Is that what he says? Is that what he says at that, the end? That of- is the quote. That is the line wow. he reads at the wow. end of the film. Uh, wow. And what- so and That's a setup for this movie. That's the setup for this movie. So what you're looking at is Tom's going to come in- as the instructor character. And I'm sure he's going to have a badass student like a Maverick where he's going to see himself in him and they're both going to fly together because... Yes! Yeah, and it's going to be the son of his uh, ex-partner. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) The son of his ex-partner. Come on. That's it. And you know what's going to happen. He's training all these people and he's being phased out because drones are coming in and everything's mechanized and he's like saying, no, you need that human touch and they're saying no and then all of a sudden there's a malfunction with the drones and it's got to be up to him and the hot (laughs) shot that's just like him to go in there and be top Again. <laughs> That's my prediction. <laughs> oh my god, my <laughs> dude! I gotta tell you, that's yes. a great storyline right there, man. That you know, that's the storyline. That's the storyline. There's no. That's it. Be. Don't it's think about be. it. Cut. Just, just be. cut right there. <laughs> Let that movie exactly. roll right now. <laughs> that's the trailer right there. That's the okay. trailer, my man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mike Sargent, film and culture critic. You could uh, listen to him on WBAI Radio in New York City, and you can also watch him on Fox Business News as well as PBS. Mike, thank you so much. All right, we'll talk soon. Guys, it's time we treated ourselves to some higher quality underwear, right? Because we deserve better. We deserve underwear that feels good, provides support, and leaves us feeling fresh down below. That's what Saks underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. When Saks first got started, they wondered, why can't men's underwear be better? The answer? The ballpark pouch. A 3D support system unlike anything else in men's underwear today. I use them and it feels like bliss. Everything stays put, no friction. You can move around comfortably in it. And then there's the breathable fabrics. Super soft, moisture wicking that repels BO, body odor. Since I started wearing sacks, I haven't wanted to wear anything else. 
I wanted you to feel the same exact way. So I've worked with Saks Underwear on this great limited time deal. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But to get this great offer, you need to use my promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT at checkout. Order a few pairs of Saks right now with this great offer and go to Saks Underwear at saxxunderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's and use the promo code highly relevant at checkout. Remember, saxunderwear.com, promo code highly relevant. Luna Lauren Velez, and I am an actress and producer. Luna is one of the most successful Latina actresses working in Hollywood right now. Her latest film, American Adrift, is about how drug addiction strikes a New York Latino family. But it's really her passion project, They Call Me La Lupe, a biopic about the queen of Latin soul. Well, that sees her the most exuberant. Here's my conversation with Luna Lauren Velez. Luna, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you for asking me to be on it. Um, I'm very excited uh, to talk to you simply because I've just seen you in so many things. I mean, uh, you are a prolific actress. You've done so many TV shows that so many of us have seen. I mean, here, just to kind of go through some of them, MacGyver, How to Get Away with Murder, Blue Bloods, Madam Secretary, Elementary, uh, Dexter... Uh, Ugly Betty, which is where I remember seeing you as well, Law and <laughs> Order, Numbers, Medium. I mean, these are some of the greatest shows of the last 10 to 15 years. Mm. How did you become so prolific in this? Uh, what is it exactly that has attracted so many producers and casting people to you specifically? Um, that's interesting actually all those things that you read off the majority of them were guest spots right which are really kind of tricky to do uh, but i think most of them were as a result of maybe my first show which was new york undercover and um and then oz and then ugly betty and then dexter uh, but all of those i think embodied characters different characters that uh, casting directors or producers felt really resonated with people. Uh, so, you know, in turn, I got asked to do a lot of guesting, which is literally like being a guest in someone's home. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, was it, were, were you always surprised when these major shows were calling you? Because, I mean, to a certain extent, when a national CBS show calls you, that's like the dream for so many actors. Yeah, it sure is. But I'll tell you, it's funny. I've, I've always done things sort of backwards. Typically, people sort of like build up to uh, a series role or get super lucky, mm -hmm. you know, like I did. Um, but you think you, it was luck? Um, well, I think luck is never just luck. It's typically luck and um, opportunity and being ready to take advantage of all of them. Do you know? Right, right. So I think when I did when I did my first film, which is I like it like that. For Lisette, it's a crazy place to raise a family. A hard place to hold on to your man. You see this ring? You know what that makes me? His wife. You know what that makes you? His home. That was an extraordinary experience. I, I read it. I, re I saw the audition in Backstage Magazine. <laughs> or a newspaper, which used to, you know, I used to be a hostess. 
And so I saw it and I thought, I'm going to go out for it. They're never going to cast me ever in a million years because it was for a Latina. And Afro-Caribbean women were not being represented at all. Like Rosie Perez had just surfaced. Um, she was a beacon of hope to all of us. So I went out for it and uh, Darnell Martin cast me. And it was an extraordinary, it was the first movie I ever did. It was a starring role for Columbia Pictures. So I started off at the deep end already. And afterwards, I went back to wait tables and hostess in the restaurant until that, the movie came out. <laughs> was that a crazy experience for you to, to be in what many people in this world feel is a fantasy of being the star of their own movie and then afterwards going to just wait tables? Was that reality almost a shock to you? No, it wasn't. Because the part that felt, at the time, that felt more sort of... Uh, guess fantastical to me was starring in a movie yeah I, I just thought wow I mean and but that really was luck and timing and being like ridiculously ready to do something <laughs> and um, thankfully Darnell Martin actually wanted the real thing she didn't want a Hollywood version of this character I see who was like the Bronx mother of five Puerto Rican it's just a different quality feel and um, that's what she really wanted. So I, like I said, I'm so grateful for that experience, but it, it, was, it was a wonderful indie picture, even though it was a Columbia Films, at, at its heart, it was an indie film. Um, so we didn't get paid a lot of money and there were no stars, so everybody was there to work. And it was the first time I, read, I met Rita Moreno you're kidding me. No. What was that like for you? I almost wanted to genuflect when I saw her. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, like, whoa, I, I, I didn't even know where to look. And then I started sort of like throwing her lines from West Side Story. I mean, it was of course. horrible. She's for an her. EGOT. I mean, she it really is. I met her recently at the Belay Hispanico where she was being honored. She's 80 something years old. It's amazing. And she looks like she's 65. Yeah, and the spirit of and a the spirit. Year old. Oh, she's still dancing. Yeah, she was still dancing and and singing and singing, and it's just a part of who she is. It's she she cannot be anybody else. She said something which I think is really missing in a lot of actors or or, or I should say stars today. Right? I I said to her, you know, it's been such an honor to to meet you and work with you all of these years. And I, I mean, I was moved to tears sharing with her how how much she meant to me. And she said, you know, it's so extraordinary. I always think of myself as that little girl from the island. And that's who I always relate to. So I hear you saying these words. And, and they, it doesn't It doesn't feel register. like that's me. But she's every inch a star. Everything about her is just, I mean, beautiful, talented, talented. insanely talented. An icon, you know, revered, truly revered. And not just by the Latino community, you know, but... Oh, by everyone. By everyone. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get into acting? The moment, and I remember very well, <laughs> the moment was in the second grade. I played the groundhog in the school play. <laughs> <laughs> I remember what I was wearing. I remember everything about this moment. And I only had two lines. And I was sort of oddly filled with dread as I, as I approached the stage. I kept thinking, I don't know what's the matter with me. But I think I inherently knew, like something bad was going to happen and two they were terrible lines so i went up on stage and uh i had to say to father time oh no you won't 
and he says, who are you? And I say, I'm the groundhog. And all the kids, like it was happening in slow motion, started laughing. Ah, groundhog, groundhog, you know, pointing their finger at me. It was like one of the worst and the best moments of my life because I thought, mm hmm. Why no. worse than best? Uh, worse because it was the humiliation I thought I was going to feel. The judgment, right? The judgment and humiliation from being from playing the groundhog. Like right. I embodied <laughs> the groundhog. <laughs> and then it was the moment that I found like I'm willing to go through this because I love this so much. And I knew it. It was like, I never thought about anything else. Uh, I spoke to Andy Garcia one day and uh, I, within the part of our conversation, uh, I had called him a Hispanic actor and we actually got offended <laughs> yeah. and called me out on it. And I said, well, if you're not a Hispanic actor, I mean, are you a Asian actor? I mean, like you're a Hispanic actor. <laughs> He's just an actor. He's just an actor. How do you consider yourself as a Hispanic actress or just an actor? I, I consider myself just an actor. I, but I'm extremely proud to be a Hispanic actor. And as it's, that's an interesting question because I feel like as time goes by, the older I get, the more interested I am in telling our stories. It, you know, and, and at this moment in time, uh, specifically stories about the Caribbean experience or people who, um, you were born I'm in first generation. I was born here. But my parents are New from York. Puerto Rico. Yeah. And you were raised in Queens? Raised in Rockaway Beach. Yeah. Yeah. The rock. <laughs> <laughs> and how has your, the way you've been raised, your background, how has that informed you as an actor? Well, you know, I think when you're first generation, there's something really, especially from, uh, you know, my parents came here in the 50s with that whole diaspora, right? And so the dream was to be American, even though Puerto Rico is ostensibly American American uh, until, know, recently, until recently it feels like it's it's not a part of America yeah it's not yeah. a part of anything it's just sort of been cast off which is um, I mean so tragic on so many levels and and terrifying and so indicative of everything that's going on in this country mm -hmm. I am horrified but not surprised why are you not surprised I guess because growing having you know it's interesting. There's so many things now that people say to me, wow, that's so awful that that's happening to somebody over there. Um, gosh, somebody called the cops on somebody or this person was, um, you know, was sleeping in the dorm and they woke her up and they called the cops. All these all these things that are happening now. Um, I'm like, we grew up with that. That was just sort of part of being a person of color in this country. Mm-hmm. We, I, I was almost always the only one in the room that wasn't white, you know, and I, that's how I grew up. And so I experienced a lot, and so did my family. You know, when we first moved to Rockway Beach, people, you know, they didn't want to talk to us. Um, our neighbors told their kids, don't play with them. They look black, they speak Spanish. We don't know what the hell they are. Just stay away from them. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. <laughs> it was very confusing for some people because they didn't, there was no representation of that particular thing of being Afro-Caribbean. And in my family, we were different colors, you know? Um, so I, I guess I see I'm not surprised because I, when you grow up with that awareness, mm -hmm. you know it exists and it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's in the fabric of our country, you know? Um, but I did think that it meant something that Puerto Rico was part of the United States. Mm -hmm. 
and it doesn't. Has that experience also translated to your professional career in Hollywood? Well, it, it's interesting. What I experienced at first was when I used to get sent out for Latino roles, it's about 25 years ago, um, they wouldn't see me because Hollywood's perception was Mexican. And that's all they understood to be Hispanic. I understand that too, because there's a rich history of Mexican cinema in Hollywood back from the Charlie Chaplin days, you know, the Dracula days as well. Cantinflas, you know, they were trying to get these great Mexican actors in here, but they kind of limited it only to Mexican and not extend that to all of Latin America. Absolutely. But also because in California, the, the Mexican population is huge. Yep, so when someone sees um, that person, uh, that Latino, that's what they're looking at. And so they, especially then, 25 years ago, they didn't, they, they, it, that's just what was around. And I think that was under, that was the perception that all Latinos look like that. Well, there's also the thing about Latinos that look white, yeah. blonde, blue eyes. You know, we watch Cameron the novellas. Diaz. Cameron Diaz, right, who's all Cuban. I'm sure if she tried to get a Cuban role at that point, people wouldn't hire her in spite of being, you know, right. ridiculously beautiful. It's just like she wouldn't And get then the there's the Los Trigueños, yeah. you know, the Afro-Latinos. Mm -hmm such as ourselves, where, yes, we're also Latino, but we don't look like a white Mexican. That's right. Jewish Mexican or something like, along those lines. We look completely different, our uniqueness. And that was the part that sometimes casting directors just wanted to hire, but the directors or the producer of the studio says, well, we don't want to necessarily have that level of representation in our film. <laughs> and if we do, they're going to be in inferior roles that reflect society. Right. How did you manage to just get out of that? I don't know. Right place, right time. So we go back to the luck issue. Um, opportunity issue is how I prefer to think about it, really. I mean, I, like I said, Rosie Perez really had opened up that door. And she was always, people questioned her background all the time. Are you 100% Puerto Rican? She was like, I'm 100% Puerto Rican. And what people don't understand specifically about Puerto Rico is that it's not a race, it's an ethnic group. And so with that, we come in all different colors. I mean, the true Puerto Ricans were the Tainos and the Arawaks. They were right. Indians, you know? So, uh, you know, there, there's that. And so at that point, Rosie had sort of just kicked down some doors and there was a little bit more of an opening for it. The irony is that once I was cast as Latina, I couldn't get cast as black. They were like, no, you're not African-American. So then it's weird. Then that distinction started happening. They were like, no, you were, there's nothing about you that feels like it's like part of the African-American community. So it was really interesting that that was happened. Was this your agent told you that or? No, whatever, that? well, sure, my agents relayed the messages, but there were things I wouldn't be seen for. Even to this point, people recognize me as a Latina actress. And I'm like, um, I could go a whole bunch of ways. Yeah, you and, can. And um, now, did you ever feel like you needed you? You were forced to change your name, your last name, in any way? I never felt that. As a matter of fact, have you ever been told to do that? No, but I know people who have been, and I I have friends who somehow wound up with like Irish. Um, surnames and I feel like yeah. wow that's bonkers Rita Hayworth is a good example <laughs> sure right. but you know that during that time it's even more understandable I mean that's we're talking about the the 30s and the 40s right but when I was coming up 
people didn't need to change their name so much, but I, I know people who did. I never felt that. Uh, if anything, I actually felt like Lauren was so American. I was always saying to my mom, like, why? why why'd you name me Lauren? Why don't I have a different name? Yeah, it's like my last name, Rico. I mean, Rico could go anyways. Anyway. You know, it's uh, Italians think it's Rico. <laughs> Americans think it's a made-up name. You know, Latinos is like, oh, yeah, you're Rico. Yeah, yeah. I, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you start getting roles that were just non... Uh, specific? Non-specific. Um, after... Um, you know, they just started coming in somewhere in between. Because when you do a series, like New York Undercover was almost three years. And then I went on to do Oz, which was six years. And then I had a little bit of a break and then fell into Ugly Betty. So in between there, it's interesting, all the characters I played, with the exception of Soraya Hargrove, which was on How to Get Away with Murder, season three, she, all of them have been Latina. All of them. Are you and okay with that? Yeah, they're, they're brilliant characters. So you don't, you don't have a problem in being pigeonholed as a Latina no. in your roles? I, I don't feel pigeonholed as a Latina. Sometimes I felt pigeonholed as like, oh, she played a cop in this, so she's, she's going to be great to play a cop in that. Um, I feel typecast in that way sometimes. Mm. Uh, and I fought really hard to move out of that box, which is never easy. Because, I mean, once for anybody, for any actor, white, black, Latino, you know, ultimately... We approach it, I think, as most actors I know, as an artistic endeavor. This is what you do. You're you're creating something. Um, that's not how most studios or producers, you know, it's sort of like, let's make sure that we have a great product mm-hmm. and you are part of a great product. And ultimately, the goal is to have it be successful, right? And if it does great, then what you're going to get, and if you play, you know... Um, a detective. Everything you get right after is going to be detective, detective, detective. And it's like, oh, yeah, but actually I wanted to play something else. I have this right. great role in mind. It's like, no, but what we know you can do and what we know to be successful is this. So then there's that, you know. That tug of war. That tug of war, that fight that you have to take on. And sometimes the only way to break it is to step away, which I've done a few times. And do your own projects. Yeah, and sometimes just take a break from all of it. It's it's not a it's not an easy business. You have to really thick skin to stick it out. And you also evolve as a human, as a person, where let's say you start out in your twenties, by your thirties you're you're a different person, which sure. means you're a different actor. Uh, which brings me now to American Adrift. This is you're not a cop. You're a grieving mother. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the story because uh, there's a lot there to talk about. Yeah, so the story is about um, a family that is uh, moved to Long Island in search of the American dream. Um, The mother and father both are Latino and they moved their kids from the city uh, to Long Island. And uh, she's a professional. He's a professional. Well, the father has had a stroke, so... She's a professor, right? Your character's yeah, a professor. professor. Yeah, adjunct professor. Yeah. People are always like, what does that even mean, adjunct? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a line from a play I just did. Um, so, yeah, she's a professor, and um, her youngest son uh, gets, uh, you know, starts using drugs, gets caught up in this vicious cycle of heroin. Heroin, opioids. Yeah, which is, like, needless to say... 
the epidemic in this country is is incredible. It's it's really fascinating to me how quickly it spread and how it spread because in part my understanding is opioids became so available because doctors were given sort of carte blanche to use them yeah. and prescribe at will and without really understanding the addictive properties and the nature of it. And so in this story, um, her son succumbs to it and we sort of hint at the fact that it's, it started with her painkillers, you know, because she has back issues and all that stuff. Um, and we hint at that, that that might be, might, might have been the gateway. Mm. Uh, so she's carrying this grief and this responsibility and trying to do the right thing, keep her family together. Uh, but, you know, when there's an addict in a family, uh, there's, it's, it, it will divide a family because you'll have people, members of family who will um, uh, enable mm-hmm. the addiction, others who resent the fact um, and the destruction and the toll it's it's taking on the family um, and the dynamic can become super explosive and and that's what happens in this movie and this this woman is trying to hold on to her family hold on to her job all of which is being affected by this by her youngest son the things that I took from that film in particular are maybe not the things that were meant to be seen but it's just I can't help but look at film differently, especially because I'm Hispanic myself. And when I see uh, Hispanics in film, I know that there's been years to see a almost full cast of Hispanics done by a Hispanic director, Hispanic producers, a Hispanic crew. This was essentially a Hispanic production. Absolutely. And it's not, and the beauty of it is that the, it's not being billed as a Hispanic film. It's a film about a family. And, right. But this experience is so universal about a family coming apart. I mean, hello. So I feel like that's the, the thing that is so important. And that it happens to be Latinos is incredible. Right. Because needless to say, those, these kind of movies are rare, even rarer with a Latino cast. So why is it that this movie could be done for American Drift and have a Hispanic cast that plays a universal situation that could happen to an African-American family, could happen to a white American family. Why, Why do you think that Hollywood hasn't fully adapted that concept? What's the fear of them doing what you did in American Adrift? I think the fear is that they think people aren't interested or they won't see it or they won't relate or they won't see beyond skin tone. Uh, on one of the shows that I did, one of the TV series, I was approached by one of the head writers and they said to me they really wanted to write more for me and my character, but they weren't sure how to write for me, which, Jato <laughs> Sai. <laughs> See, but that's crazy. I mean, it, Why? It's, it's, it's not only is it crazy, in the, in, this is Creativity 101, I mean, you're a writer. You're supposed to be able to write for everyone. And at the end of the day, whether somebody has an accent or um, speaks a different language, we're all saying the same thing in a different way. It's because a lot of writers, and I asked this question to Woody Allen, Woody, why aren't there no black or Latino people in your movies? You film about New York. New York isn't white Jewish. You know, all the time. It's it's. This is the greatest city in the world because of the diversity that Absolutely. it has. Absolutely. And he says, because I don't know how to write 
outside of what I know, mm-hmm. which is white Jewish, you know, New Yorkers. But um, but why someone think that thinks that the conversation would be that different? Okay, we can have a conversation, and I can throw in "tu sabe," or I mean, you know what I'm saying? It could be anything. But if you take those things out, it's still a conversation. So why not just let the actor bring what they bring to that conversation? I, I But mean, how is the writer supposed to write "bueno, tu sabes"? When it's not his language, he probably doesn't have Hispanic friends that have informed him as a writer of the rest of the world. Maybe he's not as traveled as possible. You know, it's it's these things Hire that... Hire a Latino writer! Exactly. It's like... So how many of the shows that you have done? I mean, you were recently in uh, The First Purge, yes. which has gotten rave reviews. And that did social commentary. It's very scary. Very scary. <laughs> But that also had social commentary about sure. race. Here in America, it mirrored a lot of what we're seeing today happening in this country, and it, and it's and it seems so. You know, so many people say, "God, it's such a violent film." Violent, you know, it's almost unwatchable. I couldn't watch Braveheart. I mean, I thought that was intensely violent, and I thought, "Wow, I don't want to see that." This is so. I get it, you know, but I think what's more important about this—the overriding theme of. An invasion, people being trapped in a certain place, the assumptions that are made about them, the banking on, you know, these assumptions, and then when they don't actually pan out, the how far people will go to make sure that these assumptions are realized or fulfilled. I mean, that to me is kind of, it's terrifying, and and there's a level of it that's going on right now in our country that's even more terrifying no it's gotten really good reviews i wanted to move on and talk to you about la lupe movie now for us hispanics many of us know la lupe kind of like we all know hector lavo uh and you have done it's on kickstarter tell me a little bit about this project because as soon as i saw it I started thinking about that movie. Tortured you? (laughs) No, not at all. But I started thinking about you know what Hollywood, how Hollywood has treated salsa films. You know, Jennifer Lopez recently did one with uh, Mark Anthony, El Cantante, with Mm -hmm. Hector Lavoe. But it was really about Jennifer Lopez's character than it was about Mark Anthony's character, which I thought was the 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 problem with the film. So did I. Yeah, totally. I was like, if you had made this movie, Hector Lavoe y yo. Exactly. I think it would have been so much more successful because, and I thought Jennifer Mark killed it. Could have gotten an Oscar for his performance. For sure, for sure. And I mean, I think that was such a they they made a mistake with that. You're the first, the only person I've heard say that. But I feel like she was great in the film, and I wish she they was. Had stuck but it with wasn't about story. her. That's right. It wasn't about that character. Um, and I think there was a, a role reversal there that was missed by someone. And maybe it was a vehicle for her to have a Latino film that she could star in. But unfortunately, what we noticed was Mark was the star of that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, with La Lupe, how did you want to frame her? Uh, and what was the, the desire to tell her story? Why did you feel as an actress... You want to get this project done. Here's a woman, an Afro-Cuban woman, who comes to the States in 61, makes a name for herself, starts singing with Tito Puente, then goes out on her own, makes a ton of gold records, becomes like this salsa sensation for a decade, then 
disappears into obscurity, as many, you know, uh, as many people do, and especially this sort of trajectory. Um, but there's something about her I never see. I mean, people, some people couldn't even watch La Lupe. She was considered so racy, almost obscene by some people. Uh, I have friends who have memories of their parents turning off the TV when La Lupe came on. They didn't understand why she was pulling off her, her pulling at her clothes, uh, throwing her jewelry into the audience, moving so frenetically. Um, everything about her, I think, terrified people because they didn't understand someone singing with that kind of passion, that kind of just so out of the box. I mean, this woman was a combination, the best combination of Janis Joplin, Edith Piaf, and Eartha Kitt. I've never heard it expressed like that. Actually, wow. I, this is somebody's quote. I can't remember. I think it was 1970 Newsweek. See, but you're talking about three titans of the music yeah, absolutely. industry. Absolutely. And she was a woman completely in a man's world. This was just before the Fania All-Star. So she came in and she was a revolution during a time where there was revolution going on all over the country. We had the civil rights movement, you know, we had men landing, you know, the space program, everything it was an incredible time. And she was part of it. And the fact that she sort of uh, disappeared, I mean, to relative, relative obscurity and her contribution is so significant and so huge um, to, to Latin music, I feel like, nah, uh-uh. <laughs> that is not going to happen. <laughs> so I understand your admiration for her. But where's the connection between actress and singer? You know, I think that if you are lucky, I always get super <laughs> emotional about this. I think if you're lucky, you get something that calls you, that actually touches you in such a profound way that resonates with every fiber of your being in such a profound way, um, you know that in doing it, not only will you be different, but things will be different. And I'm not even entirely sure what the second part of that statement means, um, but I feel that this woman did something so incredible and I just feel compelled to tell her story. Compelled is the perfect word. I mean, I've tried to actually put this project down sometimes because there's nothing harder than trying to raise money for an independent. And because this is a period piece, um, it does require a lot. And we want to do it well. And it's my quest. And I, be I, I believe in it so deeply, so profoundly. Um, it, it just, it's her, her spirit is in me. It's just in me and it will not let me go <laughs> why has it been so difficult to raise the money to make this this from what i understand um um off audio there's a kickstarter campaign that you have this it's been there for four years i, I it, well we did it i think about four years ago yeah so you did it about four years ago how mm -hmm. long have you been pitching this project uh, okay so let me tell you a little bit about an indie project typically it takes for for a passion project as they like to call them it's, about 14 years to get it. What? To, yes, you gotta want it. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's um, incredible, but you, you have to want it and be in it for the long haul, you know? Okay. Um, and something, I mean, I was just watching something called The Night Of, and it's oh, on it HBO. Was, yeah, produced oh. by James Gandolfini. Great, great, incredible. one of the best shows I've seen in the last two years. In 
incredible. Yeah. How is he a producer? Apparently, it was his passion project that he had been working on for something like, I don't know, eight years? And when I read, when I read that... It's another it just, show about how race is involved in people's lives and crime and things like that and how people race, perceive things. assumptions. Yep. Yeah. But imagine, he'd been trying to get this produced for such a long time and finally, you know, unfortunately passed away and somebody else realizes his dream. And I thought John Turturro was wonderful in this. I mean, I'm shocked he didn't get an Emmy nomination He's just for that. brilliant. Yeah. He's brilliant in everything he does. And, and so getting back to your your question, so why hasn't this been made? You know, we've got an amazing script that uh, James Manlis Jr. wrote. It's beautiful, and it's big, and it's a period piece. So initially my intention was to do it a very small one, but then we've got this beautiful script that requires more money. Um, and we had the financing twice, and it just fell through. And that's the, that's the what you're always chasing in Hollywood. It's the money to make a film. So I'm still within my 14-year window. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm praying to God that this is the year. But I think we're going to probably take it back to being more of an indie and um, restructure how we're telling the story. Because the, the most important thing is the story be told. And even sometimes we get hung up on how we want to tell it, what's the best way to tell it, who we want to, tell, you know, to join us in the telling of it. And as time goes by, I feel like it, it's, it's sort of I'm getting the distilled version of it is coming back to me. And I feel just tell the story. It's about this woman who was larger than life, who sang her heart out who wanted to do nothing but give freely, love freely, express herself freely. And she paid a price for it. And I feel like you can tell that story, can't you? Yo uh, creo que sí. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it'll happen because uh, I saw a clip of what you uh, have done already and it, ju it just looks like a movie that's, that's about to come out in the fall. It, yeah. it could have award uh, sensibilities uh, uh, about it. Um, one thing that I did uh, before we finish off our conversation, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about fame um, and, and the actor and celebrity. And um, I'm fascinated by fame. Mm. What about it? I'm fascinated how you could be ignored by the world one day on a Monday and on Tuesday an announcement comes out and people completely treat you differently. How have someone who, who works in so many television shows and movies and theatrical plays, like a pure thespian, how do you deal with recognition? How do you deal with the way people, maybe even family, friends, how do they treat you now that you're someone of importance in the Hollywood industry? Um, thank you for that. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> I... I, I it's so interesting because I, I have, there's this sort of disconnect for me with that part of it, sort of the celebrity part, you know, an actress who's well known. It's always jarring to me still uh, when I hear my name. You're you not know, jaded at this point? No. I mean, I'm still so grateful that I get to do what I do. It's kind of amazing. It's really amazing that. Um, I'm living my dream. That doesn't mean it's always easy, do you know? I mean, I, I, it comes with its own set of stuff and, and um, 
battles that I still have to fight. But I feel incredibly fortunate. And I work really hard. I busted my ass. I really have. And I put in the hard work. And I feel like that's how it gets done. So the other part, you know, sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes you get free stuff. Sometimes you get upgraded on an airplane seat. Sometimes really, you know, wonderful things happen. Um, Have you felt in any way that you've changed? No, I just want, I want more of them for my family. Because if I can't enjoy them with my family, <laughs> it's just not the same. So typically if I get swag or anything, I'm like, mommy. Mira lo que te traje. Or it's like, I will, I will distribute everything with my family. I mean, I'm a New York actor, right? I picked up furniture. Like, we used to go furniture shopping. It's like, oh, my God, look at that chair on the corner of 57th Street and 10th Avenue where uh -huh. I used to live. That's, like, I came up during the time. It was really, like, it was different. I don't know how artists are doing it today. I don't know how actors are doing it. I don't know how anybody affords rent. You know, I had three roommates, and we did everything. We, we starved. We ate sandwiches. When we didn't eat, we couldn't eat. We um, ate tons of uh, ramen noodles. You know, it's like we, we pounded the pavement with a headshot and resume in tow, right? Went through to auditions with hundreds of people. Like, all of that was just part of the thing. There was no, I mean, American Idol or some competition that you could go on and get instant fame although there's a version of it with social media that you could achieve instant right. fame um which the social media thing which was never part of being an actor somehow has now wormed its way into that and now it's sort of like well if you don't have it we do don't. you feel like you need to have millions of followers for you to get a role um i don't have millions of followers but i do know that i have to have a presence i lost an endorsement deal actually you're kidding me no and i really thought come on that's a myth i don't believe this about social media but it's absolutely true and there's there's a range of numbers that's considered respectable and if you have those numbers then you are viable what number is that i've been told between 20 and 30 means you're on the radar so this is like a real conversation this is <laughs> like real. the real currency of being hired as an actor today uh, People say, you know, you get varying stories. Some people say, oh, that's not true. And I'm like, well, it is true. I know that I lost an endorsement because my numbers weren't high enough. Um, and then I know people who, as a result of having a million followers, have gotten a job. So I think it definitely ha has an impact. Can you lose a job because you don't have it? I don't think so, but it definitely makes you more attractive. That's incredible that we have to deal with this today. So there, it's there's, bananas. It, it, it is. It's bonkers. There's two. There's two theories about social media today. Lame there's, on me. <laughs> there's don't use social media, and it's the Jaron Lanier sort of theory. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know of yeah. him, and he's basically telling everybody, "Hey, Facebook, Instagram, it's the worst thing that could happen to you. You want to have a fruitful life." do not be on social media. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, well, I have to have a particular range of numbers in order to be able to, uh, to live off of my profession. How, how does Luna look at social media professionally? As a necessary evil, honestly. I mean, I, I feel, and it's not just in show business. The truth is I have fantasies about going off the grid. I really do. Yeah, me too. You know, I'm not but, gonna lie. Right? But the thing is, is how do you go off the grid? Because you can walk out the street and there's a camera overhead, you know, 
shooting your picture. There's like, there's, in a, in a weird way, I feel like social media is just sort of the most obvious way. And, but I, I think the implications of it and applications of all of it is what's really becoming terrifying to me. So I wasn't on Facebook until recently, and I have a page. How much work someone, do you put in I don't social put media? Any into, into Facebook. I do on IG, on Instagram, because I, I actually love photography. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Like, I can just post pictures of, <laughs> like, this really cool shadow shot. And the first time I posted the selfie, I got so much, you know, so much love. Yeah. <laughs> What's your account handle so people know about it so they can give it's, you more love? Um, at La Luna Velez. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and um, I said to my manager, that's crazy. And she said, yeah, nobody really cares about your photography. They just want selfies. <laughs> so I thought, well, how do you sort of marry the two? And I worked on right. that for a while. And then uh, it works as a promotional tool because now I have two movies out. I have The Purge and America Drift so I can post away and then people pick it up. So there's some, there's value to that, you know? Right. Um, but... Twitter, I, I can't even look at the, these pages uh, or, or Facebook. I don't even know how to read a Facebook page. I'm like, there's just, it's too much, too, too, too much. Right? And I, I, part of me feels like I, I don't want to learn. I feel like one platform is good enough for is you. good enough for me to really have a handle on and the rest of it. I'm happy to do without um, for now. You have, I will say five, six projects. According to IMDb, you have Windows on the World. Uh, you play Eva. It's in post-production. Mm. Swallow. You play Lucy. Shaft. Yeah, that was cool. I can't wait I for this I cannot movie. wait either. The remake. Uh, there's a movie called Anna. Yeah, with Andy Garcia. With Andy. Oh, okay, That we great. shot on the island in Puerto Rico. Fantastico. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which yeah. uh, in pop culture and geek you know, culture, this is what everybody's waiting for. <laughs> Uh, Murder, which is a TV movie, you play Captain Lily Alvarez, mm -hmm. and uh, that one seems like it's completed. If you can tell me like bullet points about all these productions, have you finished them? Are you still involved in them? Or are you just waiting for them to be released? So Murder was a pilot for CBS, and it didn't get picked up. Mm. Uh, but it was a great experience. Uh, the other films were uh, just interesting roles that I never done before especially um shaft the character of bernie and she's a I mean, you must have seen the original of course how does it feel and to be a one. part of the second it's version it's of it bonkers okay it's bonkers <laughs> is I'm it a like, pinch me thing it's, it's kind of insane like sam jackson's coming up to you and he's talking and you're doing a scene i'm like what shift <laughs> i mean it's really it was it was incredible it was surreal truly surreal and um, I, and I love this character, and I've never played anyone like her. She was really cool. She's a badass. And um, I think actually we have one more scene to shoot uh, Benny. But the other ones I completed, and they were things that I, I wanted to sort of make my way back into the film world. So I started doing um, just more roles, smaller roles in film, and sort of just building up to something, mm. something bigger. Well, Luna, it was so such a pleasure meeting you. Igualmente. Um, I'm excited about all the projects you have. <laughs> I'm really too. excited about La Lupe. Me too. Thank you because you you sort of like stoked the fires there, you know. So I'm I'm excited about 
about the future of it. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast, gracias and I wish you much success. Muchísimas gracias. <laughs> And that's it for episode 85 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Mike, Sargent, and Luna Lauren Velas for chatting with me, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as well. If you'd like to support the show, please share us on your social media and tell all your friends about it. And remember, it's through your word of mouth that our show can grow. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.